Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Some housekeeping before we get started this week. First, thanks to those of you who have rated the program on iTunes and on the other platforms from which you download the show. That helps new people find the program and helps algorithms feel good about themselves, I guess. Please keep the ratings coming. Secondly, you may have noticed we're getting near our 400th program. The moment we don't know what, if anything, we'll do to market, if you have ideas, please drop me a note through manpodcast.com. Maybe we'll come up with something cool. Now, on to the show. This week, we welcome back one of our most popular curatorial guests, Anne Umland. The Museum of Modern Art New York is presenting Jean Miro, Birth of the World, an exhibition that comes mostly from MoMA's excellent Miro collection. It's also augmented by several key loans, including the early The Table Still Life with Rabbit from 1920-21. Umland curated the presentation with assistance from Laura Braverman. It's on view through June 15th. On the second segment, Duke University professor Esther Gabara discusses her exhibition Pop America, 1965-75. to But first, Ann Umland, after the break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Trevor Paglin, Sights Unseen, at its downtown location, now through June 2nd. Featuring more than 100 works from the MacArthur Genius Award-winning artist, this mid-career survey traveling from the Smithsonian American Art Museum is the first exhibition to present Paglin's early photographic series alongside his recent sculptural objects and new work with AI. For more information, visit mcasd.org. On Saturday, March 23rd, the hit public radio show and podcast Selected Shorts comes to the Getty Center. Enjoy an evening of memorable live performances by actors and guest introducers Darcy Carden of The Good Place, Tony Hale of Veep, Michael McKean of Better Call Saul, Elizabeth Reeser of The Haunting of Hill House, and Baron Vaughn of Grace and Frankie. Actor Jane Kaczmarek hosts. Get tickets and learn more at getty.edu slash 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Anne Umland, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Always a pleasure. Jean Miro is a very major 20th century artist and, and certainly among the most significant 20th century artists of whom we don't have a full biography yet. So I wanted to start just kind of by putting him in his place and time. He's born in 1893, so he's a full generation behind the Picasso-Matisse-oriented Western European modernist vanguard. And by the time your exhibition at MoMA opens, Miro is, is 24. It's the 19-teens, Fauvism and Cubism, Cubism have, have come and gone, sort of. So what is kind of the, the, the landscape into which we walk into your show? It's 1920. show starts with Miro's first trip to Paris. 
which he subsequently described as a jolt, quote, from which he never recovered. And I think the most salient aspect of that jolt in Paris was his encounter with a number of the younger poets and artists who had been associated with the Dada Dada movement. That is Miro's generation, 1893. Dada and incipient surrealist poets and writers and people who were experimenting with language and who were fed up with the old world order that had or that they held responsible for the cataclysm that was World War One. I think, of course, he knew writers, poets, artists, friends in Barcelona, but there was something about going to Paris, which was the center of the art world at that point that changed changed everything for him. And I do think this determination to invent a new language in the wake of World War One is probably the biggest, you know, operating paradigm. So the first few paintings in the show are there's one painting from 17 and then and then we go to two paintings from 2021 and they kind of show Miro looking uh, in some ways backward at that moment he's 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 arriving at the new place one of them is a is a portrait of an artist friend I think of Miro's with a Japanese print or screen behind him which is kind of a 50 year old idea in 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 recent art and then there's another one in which the tabletop, or there are two, two paintings in which the tabletop is the site of action, one of which uh, very directly points to where George Brock will end up at the end of the decade. So all that said, Miro is looking backward first in, in, in your installation. What is he working through in these early works, and do they suggest how he may come to pare down and streamline his interests? Yeah, yes, I think so. Uh, the portrait of Ricard, just to begin with the earliest one, I think is a wonderful example of where Miro is at 1917, hasn't left Barcelona yet, but is very conversant with the languages of the avant-garde. I think that's what he's working through. Cubism, phobism, expressionism, post-impressionism even, because that portrait of Ricard is so reminiscent of something like Van Gogh's portrait of Pere Tanguy with the Japanese print on the right. But the di- the differences, I think, with Miro and that perhaps point point ahead too. So he's he's looking at other modern pictorial languages that are non-conventional, non-mimetic in any traditional sense. The things that point forward are the crazy colors, that flat monochromatic yellow ground because in your rambles through the catalog resume I don't know if you noticed in 24 he does this whole series and they're all just on monochromatic fields of yellow sort of a harbinger of that and in the upper left is a schematized palette which both interestingly when you there there's other paintings of the studio that he and Ricard Ricard the subject of that painting is Miro's studio mate in, in those those years so there are more realistic paintings of the studio they shared. And you can see Ricart in those paintings seated at his easel. And on the wall right behind him is a, is a palette, just like you see there. But yet, right in that moment, it's so flattened out. It's so colorful. It's so schematized. And that kind of bean-like shape 
will go on to recur again and again in Miro's of, you know, he rotates it, he flips it, it can be a head, it can be a palette, it can be the top of the tree. So there it's still very literally identifiable and tied to something you can name, but it will go on to have many, many more significances. And I think that's quite essential to sort of what Miro does that nobody else did before. And of course I, because I love Miro's collages, I love that he pasted in a actual Japanese print on the right-hand side. So it's not just a representation of it. It is um, a literal physical thing. And that for me ups the ante of he's trying out so many different lang languages in that work from phobism to expressionism to Van Gogh post-impressionism to pasting in an imported Japanese print, which Biographically speaking, his friend Ricart was known to collect. So there's kind of a symbolic level going on. And then my, oh, there's so many details I love about it. But in the lower right corner, if you look, he has signed it very carefully, making the letters of his name M-I-R-O in a little box stacked vertically, like the way a Japanese print might be stamped in the right-hand corner. I would describe it as fetishistic care to his signature and to the way that letters also can be pictorial elements and to his interest at the time in people like Apollinaire writing calligrams and uh, the way that letters can be visual as well as verbal things. Like it's all, all waiting to happen there. It just hasn't yet because he's trying these things out and they still don't scream out this, this, this is a, a work by Joan Miro. And then, yeah, then, then he goes to Paris and when he goes, so that's in the um, spring of 1920. And when he goes back to Spain that summer and to the farm in Mon Monroch, that's where he begins that big painting, the table or still life with rabbit. That is, uh, he later said was the first picture that made Pablo Picasso take notice of him. And that I think there is a moment in Miro's work, and this is it, where he is still very engaged with perceived reality and, and finding equivalents for that on his canvas. But I, I particularly love in that work, in terms of directions he's going to go in, you could begin to really stare at that rabbit or the fish on the right or the pitcher on the upper left. Like they each have their own little space pocket. They do. It's kind of a weird quadrant. We'll have an image of it, but yeah. Isn't it? I mean, so, and the way that that table with its stylized triangular motifs is both tabletop and landscape. So if you think with Picasso, sort of the move, as Chris Poggi writes about so beautifully, is between table, tableau, t table and picture on the wall, horizontal plane, vertical image, like Miro's playing with a larger topography. Yeah, they're little. Let me let me just jump in. They're little triangles, kind of on the tabletop. It, it Maybe even one form that extends beyond the tabletop. So it's almost like you're looking at at you know mountains rising across the valley as you look down or sideways at this kind of tilted tabletop mm -hmm. at the same time as it folds right up flat in your in your face at the same time those crazily detailed the bunny rabbit or the rooster you know they flatten out so they're both they're both hyper real hyper detailed and flat at the same time 
And I think some of Miro's crazy, quirky, innovative way with space and with what he would later say, you know, trying to give life to inanimate things. And then the way, conversely, that in his works, there always seems to be an exchange between the animate and the inanimate, right? Fixed and the fluid that can go on and on with the dichotomies that they're they're here already in this picture, even if it is so observational, but in this really intense way. But part of I've been trying to think of Miro and the relation to poetry. And like one of the things, of course, that poetry does is bring about this heightened awareness of experience, or it can. And I think that Miro is trying to achieve that heightened awareness to experience, to lived, observed experience, um, but in pictorial as opposed to verbal terms. And and this is one of his, you know, forays or steps in that direction. And even though it's not yet the Miro we all know, it ha- it does have all these uh, keys to where to where he's going. And as a tour de force, I can see why Picasso admired it. Oh, yeah. But, you know, before we move forward, there are a couple other things about this painting I want to note. It hasn't been published in 25 years, according to the Miro Estates website. Um, this is one of the few paintings in the show that's not in MoMA's collection. So seeing it in person will be a real treat. You mentioned the landscape features of the tabletop, if you will. And one of my very favorite little things about this painting is that the legs of the table have these kind of decorative little moments on them and those are and, and they're corn stalks or or grain or grain stalks so it's almost like you have the valley below where agriculture happens represented below the mountains above on the tabletop oh my goodness that's beautiful i can't wait to run right back up to the galleries and stare hard at it i love that <laughs> that's really fun and i also i have to say on another detail that i door in this picture if you look right below the bunny rabbit there is this suspended right onion yes hovering in the air hovering in the air with those tendrils over the edge of the table and if you just think on to the way that Miro's lines often become hairs become calligraphy take on a life of their own like head you know it's all all starting to happen in this very incongruous way but corn in those details, love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that it's in the show is is, is a treat because it's a painting that, that, that people haven't seen in a long time. Oh, oh, can I tell you a fun fact about it? Yeah, which please. Which you know, is that for years, this painting was owned by a man called Gustav Zumsteg, who was the owner of a very famous restaurant in Zurich called the Kronenhalle. And so for years and years, it hung on public view in a restaurant. So, so it's sort of the antithesis of of its current right current status. And anyway, yes, we were we were absolutely thrilled. There were very few pictures that I felt like we just absolutely needed to make the story complete. And this one is a real thrill to um, be able to share with our public. So you have two tabletop paintings, and then there's this really exciting, almost dramatic leap that Miro makes um, in around 1922, in which instead of portraying the tabletop as part of a table, he kind of takes the, begins to take the tabletop for granted and paints objects in space as if they're unmoored from anything. I, 
you know, we know the modernist tradition and all that. And we know that there's a mean, we, we can read in the suggestion of a tabletop. So we can kind of in these paintings in the early 1920s see where he's going. How how should we think of the objects and the space in which he's playing here in 22 and 23? What is he where where is he moving toward? I think Carolyn Lanchner described it very beautifully in a way I find helpful. He is moving from an art of percept or perception to an art of concept or conception. And you watch it in these still lives, which he titled and numbered himself Still Life One, Still Life Two, Still Life Three, as though it really mattered to him that we, the viewers of the future, see them in sequence. And when you line them up in that way, it actually is quite revelatory. For me, it's like watching him leap off the table into the void, <laughs> kind of metaphorically speaking, or as you said, yes, to take the tabletop for, for granted, whichever way one thinks about it, it just, it, it, it disappears. So in still life one, you still, you, you get a sense still of vestiges of perspectively structured space simply by virtue of the way that tabletop is, is cropped, right? So you have the orthogonal hint of recession with the stalk of grain in this like, incredibly detailed way laid out in the, the foreground, and then his little sugar pot and strainer, which already there's something a little odd up because you can see when you get up close to it that he each of those rests on a single black line that is diagrammatic as opposed to spatial. So already something that doesn't isn't a seamless seamless illusion and then when you get to still life two with the now floating trapezoid of ochre on which this very solidly illusioned like think ahead to other miros it's like one of his little personages right so it kind of looks like it has a nose in that way yes yeah, and a little neck and, and body, so that, that funny anthropomorphizing of everyday things. I mean, he writes to his friend Roland Tuell while he's at work on these still lifes, and he says he is struggling, 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 struggling to give expressive life to these humble, mundane things that are around him at the farm in Montreux. He says, you know, I fall into a chair afterwards, exhausted from from the effort. Well, one that I find it remarkable that to this day in the family, if you, in the Miro family, if you look at Still Life 2, that iron grill on the right is a it's like a real object, even though it's so abstracted and flattened out. And that schematized sort of botanical specimen like slice of a tomato at the lower left is Un uncanny in it, both its detail and its stylization. I was looking at it with someone yesterday who said it reminded them of, um, you know, patterns on a, a Japanese kimono almost. And then the way that the petrol lamp is three, three dimensional. So that idea of having different modes of representation coexisting in the same picture and in this space that is un untethered somehow, I think is moving right away from ob observation to another place. And by the time you get to still life three with those lines that contradict each other, the black one on the left and the little white one that connects down to the white trapezoid, I, I cannot make my mind make that space unified. It, it flips 
every time. And from that moment forward, I think from 23, 24, Miro doesn't go back, you know, and he later says, right, that's like at 24, he has gone beyond painting in that famous surrealist phrase that everybody does it differently. But for Miro, it's just, just, I don't want to say like Yves Klein leaping into the void, but in painterly terms, it's equivalent to that. Yeah. Well, we talk about, we were talking about leaving the tabletop behind in those three paintings, and then he leaves landscape behind in MoMA's great Catalan landscape, The Hunter from uh, 23, 24. And then we kind of see that continue in the family also in 24. So it seems like what he's doing in these years is he's completing an idea, you know, having engaged the, the, the standards, if you will, interior and tabletop, exterior and landscape, that he has taught himself how to have a language without those things, and that frees him up to advance? Yes, to make something that is utterly his own, which becomes this ideographic, pictographic, pictorial vocabulary where visual units have the weight and mobility, if you would have it, of letters that become words, become sentences, but that become, you know, are interchangeable. And these spaces, like in The Hunter, that here it's still, even though there's the yellow sky background with a pink wash over the blow. It's, 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 it's moving on, on to monochromatic, which is so abstracting. And there's a wonderful description of this early on because he does begin with sketches in his notebook for this work of what Carolyn Lancer described. The scene set as one of a Catalan peasant about to barbecue his lunch and then it ends up which it is, I, you know, if you go back and you look, you can still see the figure of the peasant, the stick figure and the triangulated, I guess, gun with the flame on the, on the right and that poor little hare rabbit over on the, on the left-hand side and the flames sprouting everywhere. So there, you know, I think Margit Rao writes so beautifully about poetic devices used by Miro. So, alliteration, which can take on a visual form of repeated, repeated forms positioned differently, or inversion, this can be that, or metaphorical thinking, looking, imagining. I guess it was, was Wittgenstein who said, right, there, uh, he talked about the ability of seeing as, seeing a triangle as the tail of a sardine, seeing a man as a moving tree, like that that way of looking at the world in terms of its potential to be something other than what you immediately see is so crucial to Miro's art. And I suppose, you know, more generally speaking to the whole surrealist enterprise of um, making the everyday strange. There's that eye in the middle of, of, of the hunter that kind of encourages you to, to think that way. Isn't that great? I love that. Miros called it. He said, it's the eye of the picture looking at me. It's like the eye. It makes it so active. And I, I like to think of it sounds very silly, but it's, you know, if before, if in that still life with the bunny rabbit, Miro's eyes are looking out at the world in front of him. Now he's at a moment where his eyes are are looking inside, right, to his inner landscape. That yet he says of the hunter that this landscape is more Mondroch, it's truer. It's truer to the spirit of this this place on the Catalonia coast that is so important to him than any mimetic representation ever could be. 
So in in four years, roughly, we get from Miro engaging tabletop and landscape and such in fairly art historically pointed, not traditional, but, you know, he's starting where everybody else started. And then he comes in 25 to the birth of the world. I mean, in, in, in four years, I mean... I think the in the previous generation, maybe the only painter who moves as quickly as Matisse, who blew through Fauvism in two years. I mean, Picasso, when we, you know, if you look back at the timeline, it takes Picasso a little longer to get through the ideas and get to what we now think of as Cubism. And Moreau is just flying. That's quite true. And I hope when people see the exhibition, the way it's installed is so that it's an open field like Miro's paintings are open fields. So you really can, in sort of one glance, take in the tabletop with Rabbit, the Hunter, and Birth of the World. And just to see those three pictures in one eye fill and think of the compressed time period they represent and the leaps made, I just find extraordinary testimony to Miro's audacity and going where no one had before. Yeah. And, you know, one way to think of this painting, probably the, the most traditional way to think of this painting is as kind of uh, an apex of his embrace of surrealism, you know, because here he's throwing paint onto the canvas in an uncontrolled way in an effort to access his subconscious or unconscious. So if we think of this painting in alignment with an ism, in this case, surrealism, are we thinking too much about the ism and not enough what Miro is bringing to the work about Miro's own project? Well, yes. I think when when this work was first acquired from MoMA's collection in 72 by William Rubin, and then when he was really the first one to publish an extended description of it in 73 in a little book called Miro in the Collection, he was very much reading it through the lens of surrealist automatist practices and wanting to inscribe it firmly within a of linear progressive history that led from surrealism to abstract expressionism and art formel. And so he interviewed Miro about it and I think encouraged him, Miro, to speak of it in terms of these images emerging from his unconscious and the way the paint suggested a shape. So he had to elaborate on it, which was very true to how Miro was working in the 70s. But in fact, in the 20s, we know the process was was different. And what was different was that he was covering this vast ground. I always I, I don't know Miro's exact height, but I think, you know, he's 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 not much over five feet and birth of the world. It's eight feet tall and six and a half feet wide. Right. So you know, he tells his friend Sebastia Gosk, I mean, thank goodness for all his correspondence, so we know these things, but he told Gosk that he's having to use a ladder to work on paintings that summer because they're so big. So just this this idea of covering the expanse with these flats and drips and spots and all the rest is, is really something. But he then, for his motifs, was drawing on a whole reservoir of imagery that he had filled notebooks with most likely between sort of January and June in 1925 when he's in Paris. So the relation between the ground and the pictographic images laid in on top of it is not as organic as as Rubin's text would have suggested. And I suppose that's where 
Carolyn Lanchner, sort of 20 years after Rubin in 1993, organizes the centennial retrospective of Miro's work, at which point the archives at the Fondation Juan Miro had been open and the existence of all these notebooks and sketchbooks was there now to be taken into, into account. And so Carolyn's, well, she made so many great contributions, but really what she did was to complicate Rubin's narrative by saying, well, yes, fine, the background is spontaneous, this is unprecedented and all the rest, but that the images were, were, were generated in another way. And that that I think for me is interesting because there is many people have written about this in Miro's character and his practice on um, this sort of fundamental dualisms that he would always subscribe to the Catalan character, this idea of passion and pragmatism, sensuality and severity, um, universality and specificity, like all of them. Carolyn, however, just insisted that there is chaos, but there is also control and that we have to look at birth of the world in a more premeditated way, let's say, than, than Rubin's generation wanted to see it, which I think for me, like ultimately doesn't detract from the audacity of covering a field of canvas with as many different types of, of mark making as you see in Birth of the World. It's just for that date and time on that scale, it is unprecedented. Like there, you know, there's so few moments when you can say something is unprecedented. It really, it really is. He just, he, he, he left what T.J. Clark describes as Picasso's room space. You know, that idea that you always have a space within which things are set and you control it in some way. He just leaves it behind. And that's the drama, for me at least, of Birth of the World. Not so much whether the degree to which the procedures by which it was generated were, were automatist or spontaneous or reflected a lack of control or a degree of control, but the, the resulting pictorial effect. And that is just, I, I love how counterintuitive it is to think of control when faced with an image that is primarily one of, of chaos, right? Of that, that splash, smudged, rub, smirched background. You know, and of course, Picasso never really, with maybe one or two exceptions, figured out how to work at this scale. Uh, Matisse did. Picasso didn't. I mean, this is we're talking about a painting that's roughly twice as big as anything that's been in the show to this to this point. So I'm spending a lot of time in, in, in the kind of earlier work because I think it's it's worth it. So this is a slightly frivolous question, but you have in the show um, one of MoMA's earliest, not earliest, but one of its earlier Miro acquisitions, 1926's Person Throwing a Stone at a Bird, notable for a few reasons, including the just absolute marvelous little bird on the left-hand side. My question, I'm afraid, is kind of dumb. Why was it interesting or important to Miro to make a painting of a person throwing a stone at a bird? Why, why that subject, I guess? Yeah, why that subject, person throwing a stone at a bird? I mean, oh boy, talk about poetic license. Is it the futility of the thing? I don't the know. Humor, the humor it's certainly funny. It? The, the, the whole painting is funny. It is. It's funny, and yet it's also, I mean, it's, it's a person throwing a stone at a bird. If you really think about it, is it that funny to throw a stone at the bird? No, <laughs> I, but the painting, that, yeah. yeah, but yeah the painting, the painting is, I mean, is foot, for one thing. Yes, that big 
biomorphic, distorted, descended, simplified foot. I love the way he works movement into it, like, you know, by having those, the black line that crosses the figure with the foot. Yeah, that it makes it almost like it's, you know, it could pivot a little bit. Ditto with the funny little bird on the left. So where does that come from? Like out of purely out of his imagination, I think. Like maybe that's, you could, you could say, well, sure, maybe in the Catalan countryside, people throw stones at bird. So it's a, a plausible situation, but Miro makes it absolutely other here. And I guess it really must have caught Alfred Barr's attention since it was one of the first works, as you know, that we acquired back in 37. To draw a line between this painting and something you said earlier about the palette behind Ricard in the 1917 painting, the head of the person throwing a stone at a bird here in this 1926 painting, almost a whole decade later, could be said to be based on a palette. It's a, it's a round form with an eye form that reads like the thumb hole of a palette. You know, that whole game with Miro of this can be that is is really fun to play. And I think it's both fun to play and then it's deadly serious because it's creating these these signs and symbols, again, going back to the language or the vocabulary metaphor that depending on what you combine them with can mean many different things. And I think that that idea of Miro as an artist who generated a reservoir of pictographic symbols that can be positioned and interchanged and made to read anew based on each context and period is, is as I believe I said before, like is one of the real um, keys to to his enduring contribution to the history of 20th century art. I mentioned how fast Miro is moving earlier, and we see it again in getting from in person throwing a stone at a bird in 26 to the great Dutch interior of 28, which is pictographically sort of similar, but otherwise just totally not. So instead of trying to chart Miro's progress from here forward, I'm going to try and pick a few paintings and moments for us to talk about. Dutch interior is in MoMA's collection, the 28 painting, and 30 years after MoMA acquired it, uh, Miro gave to MoMA the final charcoal and pencil study for Dutch interior. So assuming the study is indeed, was indeed made before the painting, what does comparing the study to the painting offer us, show us? Well, for one thing, it shows us that Miro, as we would have guessed anyway from the beginning of the show, is very conversant with traditional academic methods squaring up a drawing for transferring it to a canvas. Well, one of the things I liked about including that preparatory gridded drawing for Dutch interior in the show was that I love the relation between it and the family and how it makes Miro's play with the grid, which in the early is just absolutely ongoing. I think so many painters of his generation are trying to undo perspective in different ways. You know, they're anti-perspectival and that what Miro does with with grids, traditionally Western art, are devices used to help construct plausible, illusionistic rendition of three-dimensional space and the way he turns them to completely other ends is a, is a through line that I'm like thinking about. And then, so then back to Dutch interior, right? So what do you learn? So you see that he gridded up his drawing, presumably so he could transfer it as exactly as possible to his canvas. That 
drawing is one of an entire series that with this work, Miro is looking at postcards. He's looking at mechanical reproductions of 17th century Dutch genre paintings. So the gridded drawing is a final step en route to the transformation of this very realistically rendered scene to this interior where space is flattened out, color is unnaturalistic, details, you name them, from the tablecloth to the guitar to the guitar player himself with that bright red face dot in center and the swollen white shape around it. like Every single element of the original postcard image has been miroified, right, or transformed. He's like taken a 17th century Dutch genre painting and made it a 20th century version. And I think the drawing right tells us that that was a process, like it, it sort of steps us through it, steps us through his method and reminds us again about Miro, the, the craftsman in addition to the, the visionary, both, both are operative here. In the late 1920s and in the early 1930s, Miro makes a lot of collages, some on sandpaper, some not, many not. A number of these collages, some of which are made out of wood, I mean, you know, we're talking about just a wide range of stuff. So many of these were in your, your terrific 2009 show, and a couple of them are here. Should we think of these collages in relation to or as preparation for or as learning something for painting or should we think of them as kind of their own separate thing i think we should think of them in relation to miro's more conventional painterly practices by conventional i just mean those that use paint applied to canvas i think a number of things but one fact that i like to keep in mind about those collages in the show, The Spanish Dancer, Onto the Wall Relief. But The Spanish Dancer from 28 in particular, or the 1929 collage, is that Miro exhibited them as part of a two-phased exhibition. So for one week, he showed paintings like the Dutch interior, a portrait of Mistress Mills. And then the next week, he showed the collages and he described them as oh, rounds in a self-staged boxing match so that there's always kind of a back and forth in his work between painting conventionally writ and the use of materials. I guess the other thing I would think is, or I hope, is that when people go through the show, you know, there's so much to say back to Birth of the World, which in the installation is hangs very proximately to the Spanish dancer in the 1929 collage. Like there is just a lot more to say about birth of the world and material experimentation. And that having the collages and keeping those in mind, I think for me, encourages me to look back at how birth of the world is radical, materially speaking, just as the collages are more, more literally. I mean, I think Miro, right, he, he's from 24 on, he's telling Larice that he's interested in the way that the Poets, poet friends use arbitrary letters or sounds or words as points of departure. And he wants to do the same thing with his materials. So I think that's pre-birth of the world. It's the moment when he first begins to make sort of collages in a serial as opposed to one-off 
way. And I just, I just feel like I personally should have been looking back harder at the ways paint can be collage like or manipulated or um, experimented with before he gets to these more pronounced material forays in the late 1920s. So from all of what we've been discussing, seemingly out of nowhere, at least to me, out of abstraction and objects in space and the pictographs and collage, suddenly Miro paints a bather in 1932. It is one of just two oil paintings, as far as I can find, it is one of just two oil paintings of bathers that he ever makes. And the first one, which is uh, in 1924, doesn't even have a bather in it. It's a nighttime abstraction of the sea. So why in 1932, and for really more or less the only time in his whole career, is Miro painting a bather? Hub, I'm going to trust you on that. I had no idea that there were only two bagneuses in Miro's I went, hole. I, I went through the, the, the estate website, so it's entirely possible I'm missing one or two. But No, no, I, I, I trust you. I trust that estate website. Absolutely. So how interesting. I mean, I think this little painting is one of a whole series that he does in 32 on wood panel. It's an interesting, I'll back into the question a little bit, like it's an interesting moment biographically because after years of going back and forth between Paris and Catalonia in 1932 for largely for financial reasons, he decides that he has to remain in Spain with his family and he writes to his friend Christian Zervos early in January 1932, right around the time of this painting, if I'm correct, October 32. Yeah, October 32, yeah. But he says, you know, it's hard to believe that after years of some modest success and travel and all the rest, I am back in Barcelona using as a studio the room that, where I was born. And for whatever that's worth, that that is where the bather was created along with the other works in the series. It's a year, 1932, when he does a lot of work on a ballet called Jeu d'Enfant. So I do think he's thinking about bodies, bodies in motion or bodies at rest, perhaps, as with this bather. You can find a ballet pose in it. I mean, we'll have an image on the website, but you can find two arms reaching around. You could, I suppose you could, right, with that little teeny tiny head way up at the top. I think also, like just to think of it, landscapes, beach scenes, I have to believe those maybe are more pre uh, prevalent in his work. Water, expanses of water, zones of earth, air, and sky, like that that's there. But right, the figure of a bather, I mean, we only have his title correct to identify it. True, but also, I mean, this is 32, right? So, and, and not to make everything about Picasso, because no one hates that more than I do. But the sun setting or rising where at the vanishing point, all of this is abstracted and the sun is bright red, also reads like one of the beach balls in Picasso's paintings of the period. So there are these little visual hints. And also the, the form of the body almost reads like the pictogram of a face. It does, right? It flips back and forth, which is Picassoid. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that, you know, Picasso was the first person he went to visit when he went to Paris in 1920. He, like so many other artists of his generation, I think, paid very careful attention to what Picasso was doing, just as Picasso is known to have paid very careful attention to what his contemporaries were doing. And the dialogue is a very interesting one. 
with this, like then you'd have to step back and say, but we know at the same time, this is a Miro. It's not a Picasso. So it's interesting to kind of step through and think about the color for one, because Miro is this phenomenal colorist, like out of this world colorist. I like the relationship with this. You know, it's at the moment in Paris, succeeding years of abstraction, création, and cercle et carré, and Miro famously says, you know, they invite me into their abstract house as though every mark I make on the canvas doesn't correspond to a concrete reality. And yet his background there for all the world, take the figure out from in front of it, is an abstraction, right? I mean, it's a geometric abstraction even, although he makes it strange coloristically and then spatially. Again, I love how that center band on the right is a very, very pale yellow, and then it's darker on the left, which just does, right? It puts space in a flat situation. So I don't mean to question at all the Picasso thing you're saying, but I will play the Peter Sells role and, and note how much Matisse is here. You know, it's Matisse. I mean, Matisse pretty much stops doing bathers. In fact, I think does stop doing bathers after the 10s, the 1910s. But the flattening and simplification of beach, land, sky, sea, all that is right out of, you know, that Matisse, you know, bathers with a turtle moment. And and as a colorist, Miro sure ain't getting it from Picasso. <laughs> I mean, he's getting it from lots of places, but, but, but you know, anybody who's, who's, I mean, you know, there's more Matisse there than there's Picasso. Yeah, no, that's quite true. And of course, Miro's dealer in New York at that point is Pierre Matisse. And, you know, of course, of course, he is well aware two of what Henri, the father, is doing. It's it's tiny. Also, I love that. It 14 makes me by think. 18. Yeah, and it's on, um, we just, I just saw it unframed recently, which I'd never seen before. When you turn it over, it's on a, it's on a panel, which we knew, but the edges of the panel are beveled. Like it's a, found, it looks found in some way. So that whole, like recourse to the tradition of, panel painting, which goes back to the Northern Renaissance, like we really want to start unpacking the precedents for this is interesting, but that it's not on a carefully prepared panel. It's sort of on this looks to be, you know, found architectural element type of panel. Interesting too, at that moment, and that he's making something that is so pre precious looking, right? I mean, in a, in a wonderful way, because the, de the detail is so exquisite with this. That maybe is again at odds with the strange distortion of those forms. Two more things with apologies to listeners that I'm not going to get us too far out of the 1930s, even though the show certainly goes beyond that because we've been nerding out on other things and it's been fun. One of the last two things I want to raise is that to my surprise, and I could be wrong here, the first Miro featuring a bird doesn't come into this installation, this show, until 1936. There is a painting of an opera singer who's slightly avian, but she's still an opera singer. According to that Miro Estate website, which is really great, and we'll have a link to it on the podcast, and I spent, I, I've spent three nights with it in the last couple of weeks, Miro made over 350 artworks of or with a bird in them. So I get the surrealist thing. I think we all get the surrealist thing. Are there other reasons that you can think of or that have occurred to you why Miro was a wee bit obsessed with the birds? Oh, well, one of them, this will sound very simple, is they defy gravity. They just, def they float. And they float against the sky. 
Like when you, I, I always think there is a quote somewhere, I haven't been able to find it, but Miro describes lying on his back in the sun in Manroch, staring up at the sky. And you get a sense he's thinking of wanting to make a, a painting whose ground is like that sky or that makes the, brings the sky close enough to touch. So I think that atmospheric space against which birds can pass by and read a sign and that they appear to float and they defy <laughs> gravity. Like all of those to me, just, you don't have to go to Freud. You can just go to form and connotation and the specifics of someone who loves being in the, in the countryside. And maybe there's also a certain statelessness, you know, a certain between France and Spain. Yeah, it kind of escape the bounds of our world and yet are part of it. Yeah, and that, that travel back and forth like, like Miro does during the 20s. And then, of course, in the late 30s, when he goes back to France during the Spanish Civil War and famously when he's making the constellations and fleeing from the Germans and continuing to make his art. But that's a and there are birds in those two. Yeah, absolutely. One of the art handlers pointed out to me that birds, more often than not in Miro's works, are always at the upper edge of his pictures, too, just back to that things that float. And that even in that crazy 1936 so-called object, surrealist object, the parrot, the bird is at the top. In the little mountain sky star and bird, Tempera, I mean, there's a bird at the top there. And Irondella Moore, yeah, when you begin to look. The last object I want to bring up is a weird one. It's the quite large five and a half, about five foot by four foot portrait of a man in a late 19th century frame from 1950, which is exactly what it sounds like. And I'm sorry, I don't have a very good question here beyond what is it? <laughs> I love it. I love that painting makes me laugh. Because there's a big Matisse-Bernard little reference here, too. And maybe that's part of why I'm attracted to it. Oh, is there? I mean, well, mean the, the flowers the... out the window, yeah. The flowers out the window that push into the foreground, which is something that, you know, is super Matissean. Well, so this, the story of that, I don't know if this is on the estate website, too, is that Nero's friend, Juan Prats, found that crazy frame with the painting within it let me jump in really quick crazy frame it is gold it is very gold it is not square it is curved and the corners are rounded in two ways and and it is not flat it has reliefs on it sorry go ahead <laughs> yeah covered with carved floral motifs and even um illusioned bands of ribbons it is just a surrealist found object if you ever saw one and his friend found this and sent it to Miro who proceeded to act upon it and I suppose for me and so when you when you get up close to it and you, you look at it you will see that Miro has intervened he has scratched away part of the surface around the seated man and he has introduced his own, by this point, I hope familiar to our audience, some signs and symbols, the red dot at the lower left corner or the flame-like forms that hover above those flowers in the window 
or other little motifs at the upper left and upper right. And, you know, I think it's so interesting in many different ways. I mean, just in relation to 1950s and interest in assemblage is one one way back to the whole surrealist engagement with found objects, looking to thinking of Miro's ongoing engagement with sort of his real materials, in this case, academic painting, and how he can make them absolutely something other. And so in a way, in a very literal, funny, um, humorous, visible way, you can watch here Miro acting on the tradition of painting, of Western art in the sense that he's been doing all through the show. It's just, it's like the little, little key, if you think about it. I'm inserting too much of myself here, but, but the flowers you mentioned on the frame and the flowers outside through the window behind the, the seated figure, I mean, that's for me, the Matisse reference in that, you know, Matisse uses flowers and plants to meld indoor and outdoor and to, to, to make them permeable. And so here Miro is doing that only it's with the frame which is beyond the picture plane toward the viewer. So he's, he's doing everything you said about kind of academic painting and then tying it together and doing a drive-by of, of his peers, including one of his peers who was quite prominent in 1950 and struggling with health and all while making it entirely his own. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I love that, like upping the ante on the inside-out side <laughs> and all like consummately declaring itself to be artificial, right? Constructed, man-made, all the rest. So, And not to overly draw the line, but this too was a gift of Pierre Matisse and his wife to, to MoMA. Anne Umland, you're the best. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. So are you. Thank you. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg, Intellectual Property, 1968 to 2018. This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersburg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, intellectual property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at The Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. In John Waters' Indecent Exposure, the trash auteur behind Pink Flamingos and Hairspray shares 25 years of his visual art. The blockbuster retrospective features more than 160 provocative and wickedly funny works born from Waters' personal obsessions with celebrity, crime, and lowbrow culture. Don't miss your last chance to catch this exhibition at its second and final stop, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. It's on view through April 28th alongside the photography survey Peter Hujar, Speed of Life, and a new site-specific mural by Bay Area artist Alicia McCarthy. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Duke University professor Esther Gabara. She has curated Pop America, 1965-75, which is on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University through July 21st. The exhibition examines how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists engaged with pop art alongside their American and European peers. 
The exhibition is accompanied by a terrific, beautifully designed catalog published by the Nasher and distributed by Duke University Press. Amazon offers it for just 29 bucks. Esther Gabara, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I want to start with how you position pop art geographically. The exhibition defines America hemispherically, which is to say it includes Latin America, which I think makes the maybe the 1967 Sao Paulo Biennial a good place to start our chat. What role did it play both in presenting American pop art to audiences outside the United States, but maybe also leading to or informing an upturning of an American and European point of address of pop? So you're absolutely right that the Sao Paulo Biennial, it was known as the Pulp Biennial. At the time, certainly there were a lot of uh, U.S. artists involved. There was a lot of response to it, as you see in the catalog for the Pop America exhibit. I would say that what I like about your question is that it encourages the kind of attitude of Pop America, which is starting to look at the idea of America, but from the South, right? Rather than adding to an America or adding to pop art that with exceptions or counterexamples from the America that's labeled Latin, the exhibit really encourages this kind of shifting of position to the South of the equator and looking across the continent, upwards and sideways, to see a variety of activities that engaged with pop visual language, but isn't always necessarily a response to U.S. pop. It's aware of it, but it's also these artists were aware of one another. They were exchanging ideas. They were reading. They were thinking about the idea of America. They were thinking about the idea of Latin America. So, so I guess I would say I really like this notion of sort of starting our conversation somewhere very far south and, and looking to what pop does in that hemispheric space that is available from that position. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think that it's something American institutions have done in their exhibition practice, mostly with art made in a variety of places during the Spanish colonial era and less so during the contemporary era. But maybe that's because I live in L.A. and I see it at LACMA all the time and have for years. So maybe I have a maybe I have a slightly geographically specific idea of that. The show takes its title from a really great 1968 collage by Hugo Rivera Scott. What is the text in that collage and at whom, one might say, did Rivera Scott intend it? So the 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 text proclaims pulp america and i thank ugo for his generosity and his enthusiasm for the show he has been a lovely participant co collaborator in in the build up to to pulp america and you know he's a very interesting and in 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 a lot of ways emblematic figure of of the artists in the exhibit he was active in 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 Chile in the period leading you know during leading up and including the Allende democratically elected presidency socialist president of Chile and then with the dictatorship of Pinochet ended up leaving Chile through Paris and, and ended up living in in Cuba for about a decade, which is, of course, a very in, in, important and interesting site for the design of 
the poster works that and and the artworks from Cuba that are in the exhibit. So in this piece from 1968, you see quite clearly, and it's paired with Lichtenstein's explosion piece a few years earlier. And that pairing really says a lot about how uh, we're thinking about America in this exhibit. In other words, you look at those two pieces together and you'll notice that Hugo Rivera Scott drips the yellow from the explosion design that Lichtenstein created. So you have just three colors, red, white, and blue, which very quickly many of the U.S. citizens will recognize as the flag. There's a lot of flags in the show, as would be proper to any pop exhibit. So certainly there's a reference to flags as national icons, and of course, any Chilean will immediately respond that, you know, our, our flag is also red, white, and blue, right? So there's this process of, of recognition, misrecognition through design, through, through color, through form. But what the other proposition of, of the pairing is, is that um, it also brings us back to Liechtenstein with new eyes, right? Once we're thinking about an explosion, a confrontation, the onomatopoeia of pop that that Hugo Rivera Scott mentioned in an interview, that there's a verb that you do with this pop that explodes what we know about America to make it America, that single graphic mark over the E that also invites a kind of repetition so that people reading the title will start pop America and then they stop, right? And they see that little graphic mark over the E, and you start again, pop America, and you hear the onomatopoeia, I think, more in Spanish, perhaps, than you do in English. But then you also go back to the Liechtenstein, and and you realize that it was also a dwelling on a moment that brought America together and that brought the, the tensions in and around America to a global awareness with the Cuban Missile Crisis, right, where that explosion of Liechtenstein is also deeply American with the accent over the E when the Missile Crisis had everyone on the edge of their seats about that small patch of sea that separates the two major competitors in the Cold War. So, so again, the the activity of popping that I'm interested in is not one that creates an opposition between what was happening in somewhat more southern parts of the continent and northern parts of the continent. And that, of course, is clearly and, and beautifully represented in the works by U.S. Latino and Chicano artists that are included who were spectacularly aware and in conversation with artists and art movements and political movements that crisscrossed the hemisphere. The phrase you use in the catalog is popping America, which is uh, an awesome phrase. But maybe it would be useful for what we're going to talk about next if you positioned what that phrase means both historically in terms of art, but also historically in terms of politics and imperialism? Well, certainly this decade is a decade of increased and intense renegotiations of the U.S.'s role in the hemisphere. You see that with the uh, Nelson Rockefeller tour. 
that's mentioned in the introduction, his visits, you see that in the response to those visits, certainly the institutionalization and the consolidation of the triumph of the Cuban revolution and its echoes across the hemisphere, the Mexico City Olympics of 1968. There are these moments when throughout this decade in which that in a kind of scholarly language we call Americanity, right? That idea of America is back into view in very sharp contours. But that, of course, that, since you use the word imperialism, if I recall, you you asked about, certainly that idea of America is one that if you read Latin American theorists, is one that from the conquest has been linked to modernity and coloniality, the way in which the modern has the colonial structure undergirding it. So certainly all of those historical political debates in and around and over the idea of America from those colonial images of cannibals chewing on European legs, right, is present, but 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 in this decade undergoes yet another meditation, debate, explosion, to use the Liechtenstein-Ugo Rivera-Scott pairing. So that's one answer. So the activity then of popping is really was an attempt both to reflect reluctance on the part of art critics from the Americas, from Latin America, especially in the decade, to name pop as a kind of style, but rather consider it as something that was called a spirit. It was called a kind of activity. It was part and parcel of a series of experiments with the art scene that brought art out of museum and gallery spaces and into the street. So it, I, I came up with this idea of pop as a verb to sort of embody all of that, right? That it became a way of representing how pop, recognizably pop, formal attributes and, and visual strategies were part of this broader notion of the activity that artists were engaged in. One of the ways that we can think about that is how artists were thinking about that relationship between sort of inside the museum and outside the museum, art and life, is certainly you see artists taking imagery from mass media, from advertising, from consumer culture, all of these things which existed not just in the, what was to use the language of the time, not just the first world, but also the third. There is no consumer culture without, in the first world, without the third world. Let me interrupt there just for a second, because that's something that is really emphasized in the catalog, and I want to put a frame around it. In the, in the U.S., we think of pop art as engaging consumer culture quite often, in which the consumer is the end user, an American. But in the context of this show and the way you write about consumer culture in, in the catalog is that it's also about the places that provide the natural resources 
that become an end consumable product. And, and that, that region often for United States consumer products was, was Latin and is Latin America. And, 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 and maybe now that I've interrupted, it might be a, maybe a good place to cite an example or two of how artists do that. So I'll use those examples to also keep this idea of pop-ing that you asked about. So you see artists literally bringing not just the image into the museum, the image from mass media, the consumer object or item into an art space, but inserting, moving art out of those spaces and into life, right? So that's part of that idea of the popping, of the activity of pop that I'm interested in the exhibition and that you see with works including an example of Latin American conceptualism or conceptual art, the Coca-Cola bottles by Sildo Mireles that are part of a broader series called Insertions in Ideological Circuits. Now, what Sildo Mireles famously did was to take advantage of the recycling process and distribution process of Coca-Cola in Brazil at the time. These are basically, though, a silkscreen project. He silkscreened messages um, onto stickers that were then adhered onto actual Coca-Cola bottles. Those messages say things like, Yankees, go home. This is during the military dictatorship of Brazil. They also, therefore, included messages asking about the whereabouts of a political journalist, for instance, who had disappeared. Those messages are adhered to the empty Coca-Cola bottles, returned to stores that collect the empty bottles. They're then sent back into the factories, washed, refilled with the dark liquid, and sent back out to be sold for purchase in stores across the country. What happens when you put the Coke liquid back in the bottle, of course, is that the messages then become visible in a way that they aren't when it's white sticker on clear bottle. So he literally makes the production and distribution circuits of Coca-Cola bring a message against that consumer, the, the consumer circuit itself. So that's a great work to get into two things I wanted to bring up. First, the show is, is, is broken down into five, I don't know if thematic is the right word, but thematic constructs, facing America, fashioning, mediating, consuming, and liberating America. One of the through lines through multiple sections of the show is references to Coca-Cola or at least to its logo. And it's something that is, you know, that we're pretty familiar with in American United States pop art too, Warhol, Rauschenberg, for example. Why is it such, I mean, there are lots of American corporations that were multinationals and are multinationals, both based in South America and based in the United States. Why did so many artists in gravitate toward Coke? <laughs> well, it, it's known, I mean, in Spanish, you refer to it as the imperial drink. It became wed to the expansion of U.S. cultural, political, economic power in the region from the period. It, and certainly there's a kind of historical argument for how the, the company expanded into the region, which has culminated today. I mean, Mexico, I think, is one of the top consumers 
per capita of Coca-Cola in the, in the in the world. It also you have to understand it was replacing local soda companies. So when I'm not sure whether at the end of this point, again, forgive me, it was either Coke or Pepsi that bought Inca Cola in Peru, right? So you have something called Inca Cola, <laughs> which was associated very much with a local pleasure, a local taste that then gets taken over by this multinational. So I think that's, that's, that's possibly one of the reasons. It's also a fantastic visual opportunity. We're talking about visual artists who not only choose it because of these historical, political realities, but because it in some way lent itself, the red and the white opened the door for a meditation on those colors, on that curvilinear design that Antonio Caro so brilliantly converts into the eight letters of the the, the name of Colombia, the country Colombia. You mentioned that Caro's Colombia Coca-Cola is uh, is editioned and on tin. It's an edition of 25, which itself is a reference to print techniques. The bottles we were talking about earlier, that's a vinyl transfer process, also a reference to a print technique, printing technique. And there are lots and lots of, 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 of prints in this show. Why is, why is printing and print-related techniques something to which artists so gravitated? And secondarily, I think the United States art person reflexively assumes, oh, that comes from Warhol. But is there an alternate Latin American point of origin for, for the medium and address? And, and in the catalog, you note that the Cuban Institute of Cinematic Art and Industry was working before Warhol goes to screen prints. The way Warhol functions in this exhibit as you walk through it, you know, we have one of his mouths and we have his Birmingham, Birmingham race riots piece. I don't think that Warhol was outside this America. I think there's a Warhol that belongs very much to this America that in which printmaking and the reference to mass media, in which the artists were involved in graphic design and printmaking, both in their own practice and in jobs that they had outside of their individual practice, in collaborative work by someone like Rupert Garcia, for whom printmaking actually took the place. He stopped painting at a, at a certain point because he felt that printmaking was part of the struggle that was the most important part of his role as an artist that he could contribute. But that in no way takes away from its contribution to the history of art. If you look at Rupert Garcia, Bay Area artist, who served in Vietnam and came back, who is an art historian himself, uh, really studied the history of Mexican art as a Chicano artist who realized when he enrolled in a PhD program at Berkeley that Spanish was not considered a language in which he would that would be recognized for the PhD in art history. So he left. He left the PhD program at Berkeley and he continued to study on his own. And, and so certainly printmaking in its art history, in the history of Mexico, in the history of Cuban art, in the history of Argentine art, there's incredible national histories of that. Um, but you also see it from, and this is a, an important point that I don't think we've talked about yet, is that 
this in this exhibit, I tried very hard for the politics not just to be a left politics, because I think that actually kind of erases a very important component to the articulation of pop as an activity, which is there was also a modernizing what we could call right interest in borderless hemisphere. What I mentioned earlier about Rockefeller's tour, right? Um, what we see in the San Antonio World Fair that is represented in the exhibit by the Robert Indiana poster designed for that. This sense that open borders increase modernizing success and capital growth is represented also in the exhibit. That in particular, for instance, the Mexico 68 Olympics let me let me just set that up for a quick second. Um, there's a whole section in the show called Fashioning America, and it includes uh, graphic design, fashion, and prominent within that section is material that descends from or actually was designed by Lance Wyman for the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. Sorry, go on. So what you see for the Mexico 68 grouping of works is work by Lance Wyman, part of a cultural committee head, headed up by Pedro Ramirez Vasquez, the famous Mexican architect, uh, author of important buildings like the Museum of Anthropology and History in Mexico City, also the designer of the uh, Lopez Portillo's campaign for president for the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the effective party dictatorship in charge of Mexico from 1928 to 2000. So you have a very fascinating decision by Mexico when it's granted the Olympics for 1968, the first Latin American country to host the Olympics, was to create a cultural program that included music, theater, arts, uh, sculpture, public sculpture, the famous Ruta de la Amistad, the root of friendship that still is visible through Mexico City. You can follow it <laughs> through Mexico City today. And Lance Wyman, a young designer from, from the United States, came down and formed part of that committee, which whose challenge was to create a visual language for the Olympics that permeated the entirety of, of the city, but that also communicated Mexico's readiness to enter sphere of global capitalism that was emergent at the time. Now, what happened simultaneous to that was a student and workers movement protesting the inequities of that, of the enjoyment of that, the, the benefits of that, that program, and the lack of dialogue between the pre-led government and the people who the citizens of that supposed democracy. This all culminated in a demonstration in a plaza called the Plaza de Platelolco in Mexico City, uh, 10 days before the inauguration of the Mexico Olympics, in which hundreds of students were murdered. Still, no one has gone to jail for this the, these murders. And what the students in this movement did so brilliantly was to take up the design language invented for the Olympics and 
create a kind of substitution of the meaning of those images. So they take the undulating pop-op forms of Mexico 68 that you saw throughout the city, and they substituted rather than the swimming icon or wrestling icon for the sport of wrestling, a large muscular arm of the state against a small thin arm of a student. You see in the show a student, the Mexico Mexico 68, with a, followed by a, a soldier's bayoneting, a student holding the initials that stand for his the, the school of, of fine arts in Mexico, impaling him in the in the gut. So, the in this way, and 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 Lance Wyman has actually spoken after the fact about the impact this taking up of his designs had on him and and later sort of supportive of the the student movement that did so so it's it's a very interesting way in which you see how this visual language was at the disposal of commerce capital a, a borderless americas in the interest of transnational growth and a, Mex a, a Cuban revolutionary discourse, a Mexican student movement, a Chicano movement in alliance with at the African-American civil rights movement. So this is this back and forth that, that hopefully the viewer experiences as she moves through the exhibit is to, to ask how this visual language, this activity of pop moved across the political spectrum and became the language uh, of debates and a, a language in which the very idea of pop was debated. Finally, so much of United States pop art is painting and sculpture, the, the traditional things. As, as Robert Indiana noted, and as I think is footnoted in the catalog, pop for United States artists was a kind of return to figuration and representation with a little bit of kind of attitude thrown in. Broadly speaking, do do Latin American artists hew to those media the way United States artists did, or did they view, especially after Sao Paulo, the United States' adherence to those media as an opportunity to depart from them? I hope the the visual pleasures, the experiential pleasures of the exhibit is the range of mediums that the viewer encounters. So certainly there is a lot of work on paper and, and, and poster design, but we have also incredible sculptures, a large piece by Marisol of her mother and herself that beautifully deals with the lighting of the sculpture through an, a perforated umbrella. And most, I, I think your question about figuration is an important one, but and is addressed directly by a number of the works in the show in which certainly pop is pop's figuration is present but it's a figuration informed and in dialogue with abstraction so the marisol the marisol sculpture has these geometric pink blocks that, that draw attention to the volume of sculpture 
I'm thinking of the dresses we have by Nelson Lerner, these wonderful four dresses that are called strip in colors, which each work with color panels ad adhered with zippers in four dresses of differing lengths and differing lengths of the skirt and lengths of the sleeves that reference, of course, the four seasons of fashion, winter, spring, summer, and fall. Each season you buy your new outfit, you need to dress for the new season. You need to, but of course, coming from south of the equator are a meditation on that very temporality, right? It's a little bit of an inside joke. There are different seasons in Sao Paulo, but not those four. But he also used the same color panels and zippers for a piece that we reproduce in the catalog. There's one, it's, a, it's also a, an edition of four that are, look, if you look at them as geometric abstraction uh, on can, literally canvas connected with zippers that he made as an homage to the rent canvases of the Italo Argentine artist. So this homage to Fontana that Nelson Lehrer does is also a funny meditation on the kind of abstractions reflection on the canvas where he fixes the cuts with zippers, right, with these same zippers. So, so what I would suggest in terms of how figuration is working in this particular, in my take on in the American continent is that I think this phrase, the return to figuration, makes it seem that we it, it kind of forgets what has happened in abstraction. I don't see it like that. Certainly there's a, a bringing back of the figure, but there's also these fascinating meditations on the relationship between figuration and abstraction that are possible in this moment or perhaps needed in this moment. So you look at Rupert Garcia's Unfinished Man, right, which I find to be such a compelling, haunting, and beautiful painting where he l sharply divides the canvas into the par portion of a black man's face and the upper portion that is just a color field, a blue uh, and the line of the horizon that really asks you about the possibilities of representing the face. And I, I avoid the word portrait because I think portraiture comes with a certain confidence in the subject that these presentations of faces are really kind of asking us to, to, to question who has the right to subjectivity, who has the fullness, who is granted the fullness of subjectivity, what is the potential of figuration on a canvas at this moment? Yeah, Garcia comes through as an artist overdue for broader monographic examination. Oh, it was so hard to, to choose the works by him. And I'm very excited about a conversation. Will he'll be coming here beyond the works in the show the as a programming opportunity to bring Rupert Garcia here to the Nasher to be in conversation with Minerva Cuevas, who is a younger generation, a Mexico City-based woman artist who works with very similar related strategies dwelling on 
commercial images, design, how those designs permeate public space, how do we intervene in those designs, but also that sense of Mexico never built Mexico on this side of the border and on the other side of the border, the conversations across generation and across the different Mexico, Mexican cities that include Mexico City, that include San Francisco, that include Chicago, and that include the three cities on the route of our tour of this show, which started in San Antonio, moved to Durham, North Carolina, and then the tour concludes in the Block Museum just outside of Chicago and Illinois. This show moves through these three important and very different Latinx cities in the United States and hopefully offers an invitation for the public to contribute to this reflection on America in the show. Esther Gabara, thanks so much. Thank you very much. I appreciated your interest. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.